Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, this is Arthur Snell. Welcome to a Doomsday Bunker special episode. And then it was like... It was evident that something was going on. Now we are all scattered. So we need to be strong in our unity, not to give up. The prices for the skyrocket. Every ton of rain missing from Ukraine counts. All we need is support, and Russia cannot restore its war machine to attack again anytime. Say some words, and I'll make sure it's. In October 2022, I found myself in the lobby of a hotel in Accra, Ghana, with a delegation of Ukrainian civil society activists. In a continent where there are traditionally strong relationships with Russia that date back to the Cold War era, my Ukrainian friends were there to lobby African countries to be more cognizant of Ukraine's plight. In this special crossover edition between The Bunker and my own podcast, Doomsday Watch, I'm going to talk to some of them, learn how the war in Ukraine is inextricably linked with how Africa feeds and fuels itself, and find out how it feels to fight for your country as a refugee. To start, give, tell, us, tell the listeners who you are, where you work, what you do. Uh, I'm Tatiana Pachonchik. Uh, I'm the human rights defender from the Human Rights Center Zmina. Uh, Zmina is a Kyiv-based organization working across Ukraine uh, with human rights-related issues, uh, documentation, awareness raising, advocacy, research. Um, Tatjana, you are part of something that's called the 5AM Coalition. What's the significance of that name? 5AM is a precise time when we all woke up on 24th of February from the sounds of explosion, uh, me personally in my apartment in Kyiv. Uh, so this is a tar- tar- time, of alar- uh, time of alarm, but this is also uh, the sign of impunity, because uh, uh, my NGO uh, has been working in the occupied Crimea all these eight years, and usually uh, the mass searches in the Crimean Tatar settlement started also at 5 a.m. So, in a way, it also reminds us about, about impunity and uh, the absence of the reaction of the world community to what happened in Crimea and strong response to the Russian Federation and uh, to the 
repressions against Crimean Tatar people in particular also uh, made possible this uh, further aggression of the Russian Federation, which also began particularly on 5 a.m. The mission visited Nigeria, the giant of Africa that leads where others follow, and Ghana, highly influential as it currently sits on the UN Security Council. My Ukrainian companions are prominent figures in their home country, but they are also, in some cases, refugees from Russia's invasion. Oleg Nivievsky, an economics professor, recalls the tension and danger as Ukrainians prepared for a moment they hoped would never come. Um, before 24th, uh, of course, everybody was talking about possible invasion. I discussed that heavily with my wife, uh, what shall we do if, if something really happens. Uh, although mentally we were not prepared, so rationally we couldn't really explain that. Even then we couldn't really uh, think that uh, something's going to happen. And then uh, we, went, uh, we, went to, we went to sleep and at five our son just came into our bedroom and said it's a war. And then on the, on the minute that I was starting to check my, uh, my news, then there was a blast. So there was a bump uh, sound uh, because we were we are located close to pretty much close to the to the airport, so we could really hear uh, hear what was happening there. And then it was like, and you know, half past five. And uh, when I was getting my car out of the parking place, uh, you know, everybody was just awakening, and there were even cars running around and signaling really hard so that you know people could awake uh, and um, uh, and that was really surreal because you know uh, the the road out of kiev had yeah had three lanes as far as i remember they all were packed there were jets uh, flying flying around kind of surreal i felt myself like uh, like in hollywood movie really because you know, you, mentally you understand that, you know, the war began. Now we are all scattered. Uh, my brother, uh, he actually, he was an IT programmer. He never served to army. Uh, he didn't have any military experience at all. But when, and he was abroad actually, when this war started. So he came back to Ukraine and uh, he voluntarily joined Ukrainian army and he is now defending Ukraine with this weapon in his hands near Donetsk. My uh, parents-in-law are now refugees in Geneva. Their house was uh, hit by the Russian munition and partially destroyed. And we were lucky to evacuate them just uh, before this part of Irpin city. They lived in Irpin, uh, close to Bucha. We were lucky to evacuate them just uh, a day before that part of Irpin was taken by Russian troops. Uh, the rest of my family is in Rivne region. It's uh, close to the border with Belarus, with also continuing threat of the invasion from, from Belarusian side. And, and I live now in Kiev, uh, uh, often going to the bomb shelters. So in a way, we are all experiencing this, this war uh, and these very dramatic pages uh, of our history. For those Ukrainians that aren't on the front line, there's still an urge to make a difference. Here's Oleg explaining what he hopes to achieve. So why I'm in, in Africa, right? So uh, 
because I think this is something that uh, Ukraine can do more in terms of uh, diplomacy, intellectual diplomacy, I would say. Uh, because uh, our institution, uh, Kyiv School of Economics, part of our sort of fight uh, against Russia, and so we uh, started uh, doing intellectual diplomacy activities. So we were organizing public discussions on Ukraine, uh, on, on the war, in, on Russia's invasion in Ukraine. And, um, and this is soft power. And, uh, you know, if, if European Union and the Western world, uh, world is, is basically, they are kind of united in terms of their perception of the war. And um, I think that African continent is not that much united. It's, it's been divided, I think, but, but we need unanimity of African region in terms of perception of the war, in terms of um, assessment of the war and uh, in terms of seeing what does it mean to be in the war or to have the war in 21st century where there is a global world. Uh, all countries are really much interconnected between each other by means of communication, trade, so we all depend on each other. So why Africa? Why Ghana? Well, think about the cost of living crisis we're going through here in Western Europe and then multiply it, maybe five times. Russia's invasion has created a food supply crisis in some of the most import-dependent countries in the continent. Inflation in Ghana hit 44% this quarter, and the country has had to seek a bailout from the IMF. Here's Oleg again. Uh, yeah, from economic point of view, I think this is something that brings... Uh, you know, the importance of when some local activities have really uh, spillover effects across the world, across the globe. Uh, and this is what I already mentioned before, due to increasing connection of, of countries uh, in the world by communication or global or, or trade, makes us all vulnerable, especially when it comes to phenomena like war. People in Africa, they feel it a lot. They feel it a lot. And we've heard that uh, during our field missions, especially when it comes to uh, agriculture. Ukraine is, uh, is an emerging global player, um, agricultural player. So we've been able to, we, we were able to increase our productivity substantially. And that's how we were able to increasingly export. Uh, in particular grain and oil seeds, so these are our uh, key uh, export commodities. And for a comparison, uh, 15, year, 15 years ago we were able to export equivalent of feeding like 40 million people. A year ago it was already four, uh, 400 million people, so 10 times more. And you know we haven't closed yet productivity gap, we still have potential to increase, to increase the production. Uh, but the war doesn't allow us to do that, and uh, you know, and uh, we think that it, it, it will take time uh, before we get back onto the uh, you know productivity increasing uh, trend. But that means that the world uh, does not get food from Ukraine, uh, and uh, especially in this environment, in this period of time where global stocks of grain are really tight, that means that every ton of grain missing from Ukraine counts. 
counts, it, it fills. It's not that, you know, we have plenty of grains available across the world and, you know, they do feel that. I mean, everybody feels that. And, um, and that's why prices uh, on the second day of invasion increased by 30-40%. And this is not just for Ukraine, it's, it's here in, in Ghana, in, uh, in, in Nigeria. Uh, and people feel that uh, a lot. Uh, just today uh, we've heard that uh, inflation in Ghana is, is, is close to 40%. 40% from 7% last year, so that was something like that. So tremendous increase. Uh, and uh, also energy prices, they skyrocketed also. Fertilizer prices, they also increased substantially and we were on the field mission uh, field trip mission where farmers were really complaining about that. Some of them decided just to abandon planting the rice uh, further. Um, that means huge problems for relatively poor countries. The economic and financial outlook doesn't seem good for the next year. At least what I can read um, from IMF reports that, that recently that were recently published. So that means uh, that uh, an agricultural outlook also does not look good, uh, and that means that uh, you know the more if the world uh, will not get food from Ukraine, prices will go up, energy prices will also go up or, or stay high, and that means that there's going to be more uh, internal pressure in countries uh, in, um, in, in Africa in particular. So uh, poor people is equivalent to have, to have more kind of insecurity. Because, I mean, that's also the case. Uh, I've, I've heard from some Ghanians today that uh, because of the rising pri prices, uh, the insecurity situation here in Accra increased. The more we have of this instability in the world uh, the, and situation with the food supplies, uh, the more instability we, we will have, criminal activities, uh, riots, uh, people starving from hunger, uh, it's, uh, it, it worries me in particular. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. So why are some African nations prevaricating or even siding with Russia? See, the entrance to the town, they yeah. bombed the bridge. Yeah. When they bombed the bridge, they now moved in. So as they were moving in, Nigerian army had to come through, uh, how they call this place, where, where they be? Chibok. Chibok. Nigerian army came yes. through back 
She walked with the TR-72 tanks. Ah, that blew, blew them away. And she they got, knelt. Mm. They she got knelt. where the girls got Yes, yeah. they so, so they knelt them from back. When they knelt them now, they had to move into Cameroon. Yeah. They had to, instead of going forward now, they had to cut back into Cameroon. Moved into Cameroon. You were listening to a veteran of the front line of Nigeria's war in the northeast against the Boko Haram insurgency. It's a forgotten conflict, but one that has claimed, according to a UN assessment, more than 350,000 lives. The Nigerian army has faced real challenges confronting this threat in the field. And about the only thing that worked, and you will have heard him mention that, is the Russian-made T-72 tank. Nigeria might not feel positively about Russia's behavior, but it has relied on them to supply crucial weapons, often because Western countries have refused to do so, fearing human rights violations by the Nigerian army. But there's another angle that matters in Africa. This is about imperialism, Russian imperialism. Here's Alexei Haran, another member of our delegation and a well-known Ukrainian history professor. You've spent this week uh, explaining to a lot of different audiences why uh, Putin did what he did. Uh, can, can you explain that to our listeners? As an analyst, as an academic, what is your understanding of, of why he has taken this action? Well, <coughs> he's saying such crazy things that you need, you, you will not believe me, so it's, but it's easy to double check because, you know, they're stupid enough, you know, to put in, in English on uh, official sites. Uh, look, so the first point, Putin would like to restore uh, Soviet Union or Russia Empire, you know, in whatever form. So in the Russian Empire, Ukrainians were deprived of the right to be Ukrainian. We were called little Russians. Our language was banned from the public use. So what Putin is doing right now, actually, he's saying there are no Ukrainians a separate nation. You are just one nation with us, with Russians. So he's coming back to the ideology of the, uh, of the Russian Empire. And he would like to crush Ukraine and to control Ukraine. Because without Ukraine first, you cannot, uh, you cannot build the empire, okay? Otherwise, it would be Asian empire, you know? Second point, he's really afraid of Ukrainian democracy. Not, he's not, not so about NATO, but Ukrainian democracy. Because if Ukrainian democracy is successful, then it's a clear example for the Russian people that it's impossible to live differently. So he's afraid of that. When we, we look at this question of empires, of course, Europe is full of countries that were once empires, British Empire, French Empire, Belgian Empire. Is, is this just a story for Russia that they have yet to realize that the age of empires is over? Or is there something different about Russia's imperialism? Look, yes, uh, the Netherlands has colonies, mm. Belgium had colonies. France, but you do not pretend, well, the UK, but you do not pretend to restore your empires. And Russians, they are still believing in this, you know. This is part of their culture, political culture, authoritarian, messianic culture, and they would like, you know, to teach the whole world, but not only to teach, but actually to force them. This was just an apartment block. There is no military target here, nor anywhere near. 
Unable to advance on any other front in this war, it seems Russia's tactics have been reduced to the terror model of cities, to keeping the Ukrainian population in a constant state of fear. Being in West Africa, far from home, has its challenges, especially when home is Kyiv under constant bombardment. Yes, uh, every morning uh, I wake up and uh, immediately check uh, my messengers and uh, sending uh, questions to my relatives, to my colleagues, asking if they are alive, because uh, every morning Kyiv is attacked by Russian drones and sometimes by Russian rockets. And uh, this is a, not a new feeling because I live in such a situation from 24th of February that it's really difficult to get through it. But I think uh, it, it is something also that makes us stronger. Uh, you know, we were called by many of our colleagues from other countries that we are brave and courageous people. And that's true, but the ultimate desire that I have is not to be neither victim uh, nor, uh, you know, a, a very brave person, but just to live ordinary, normal life. For me personally, it was a privilege to spend some time with Ukrainians. And one of the things I wondered about was their own perceptions of Russia. Someone like Oleksiy, who grew up in the Soviet system and is a historian, expert on Russia, political analyst. Let me say that in 2014, I didn't think that Putin would attack Ukraine by regular forces, regular Russian army. Russian soldiers coming to Ukraine to kill Russian-speaking Ukrainians in this. No, it will not happen. I'm a bad analyst. It happened. On the eve of invasion, I was asked by my friends, because they know me as political scientist, as a great guy, you know, who knows a lot, well-connected. So they asked me what would happen, whether it would be full-scale invasion or not. And I said, look, from rational point of view, it would be the local war in Donbass. There could be attack of uh, uh, some ports in the south. There could be uh, targeted strikes against commanding centers but not full-scale invasion. Yeah. Again, I was wrong. Yeah. You know. So, so that's, uh, that's why it's, again, as I have said, it's, it's difficult. It's difficult from psychological, from emotional point of view. But, uh, you know, I'm visiting Frontline uh, as a volunteer. And uh, whenever I visit the front line, you know, I see the people who are fighting for Ukraine, and it's very impressive. Because you see these guys, you know, common people who took arms. Again, many are Russian speakers, many are from, uh, from Donbass, mm-hmm. uh, and they are fighting for Ukraine, so, yeah. Um, my final question is about uh, what what Western countries should do. Of course, there has been support. There has been slowly the supply of some some weapons. Uh, is what what must Western governments and Western populations do in their messaging to their own governments? <clears throat> First of all, look. What is the tactics of Putin right now? Uh, one of his tactics is to to use energy as a weapon. Mm. 
and this is very important for Europe because he would like, he openly said that he would like to freeze Ukraine and Europe. So he hopes that with increasing prices, with problems with energy in Europe, there would be pressure on the governments to change uh, to change their policies. So it would be very, very important time. You know, so we need to face this challenge from Putin in different spheres, including the energy sector. And this would be very important, important period. But don't be intimidated by what Putin is doing, because this is also part of his tactic, you know, to intimidate others. So, so we need to be strong in our unity, not to give uh, up. And uh, as we say in Ukraine, don't panic, don't panic. Just do your, just do your job. As we headed back to the airport at the end of the trip, there was something bizarre about seeing my new Ukrainian friends return to their homes, typically a joyous experience, but that return journey meaning getting a train into an active war zone. I asked Tetiana to explain her feelings. You know, it can sound uh, strange, but I'm very inspired returning to Ukraine. Every time when I travel abroad just for work, for advocacy trips, Inside uh, myself, deeply, I feel so miserable that I am not in Ukraine. And I think it's very important to be in my country now. And uh, also having a lot of refugees, Ukrainian refugees abroad. I cannot even think how they feel about it, being a refugee. Uh, uh, So for me, uh, I'll do everything possible to be in Ukraine, to stay in Ukraine and do everything possible for justice and for accountability and for the victory of, uh, of Ukrainian people. Slava Ukraine. Heroem Slava. If you've been inspired and moved by the bravery of the Ukrainians in this story, please consider donating to Tatyana's human rights organization, Zamina, you can find them online at zamina.ua. That's Z-M-I-N-A dot U-A. And if you're a regular Bunker listener and you found this interesting, check out Doomsday Watch, where you'll find our episodes on Ukraine and our two documentary series where we address current geopolitical challenges. Thanks for listening and see you next time. The Bunker and Doomsday Watch are written and presented by Arthur Snell and produced by me, Robin Lieber. Lead producer is Jacob Jarvis, group editor Andrew Harrison, and theme music for The Bunker is from Kenny Dickinson and Doomsday Watch, Paul Hart. The Bunker and Doomsday Watch are Podmasters Productions.